there's that original dissatisfaction with my life or the world or this present moment as it is. There's the reification of the thing that I believe will get me to someplace else. So that the, the fixation on the medicine or the compound or right. whatever it would be. And then there's also like, let's say you, both of those are true and it works. And so you're washed clean for a moment. You have your halo effect slash afterglow. You come back into the world like, I'm just going to love everybody up. I'm going to change the new thought, right? Like now my mind has changed. I'm going to change my reality. Reality is generally a little more recalcitrant. And, and we start banging up against the density right. of it all and the, and the fallibility of ourselves and other humans. And so at some point you run out of your afterglow. And then to your Buddhist point, there's the subtle subject, like all, we are all one, right? This is all love. And then this subtle subject object split comes back into the garden, which is I'm clean or awake or, or enlightened or filled with love. And this this shit. These are the haters. These, this right. is dirty. And then you need, then you need the prophylactic shield. I actually need to protect myself from this dirty, yeah. impure world, whether it's with my meditation, whether it's with my Eckhart Tolle fucking tapes, whether it's or with my the next, fucking billionaire bunker. Yeah, my billionaire bunker. Any of these things, and I need to double down on those practices, which cut you back to the back to the slide, you know, top back to the top of the slide of spiritual materialism. Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to our podcast, where we voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Today, I'd like to introduce a new regular host on our show, Jamie Wheel. He is executive director of the Flow Genome Project and author of the Pulitzer-nominated global bestseller, Stealing Fire. He's an expert on peak performance and leadership, specializing in the neuroscience and application of flow states. Welcome to Collective Insights. This episode was with Douglas Rushkoff, futurist, media theorist, prolific author of Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, Team Human, and uh, half a dozen other titles. Uh, MIT once called him one of the top 50 most influential intellectuals, and he is a sweet man a dear friend and a fascinating interview and conversationalist. Uh, so we cover everything from Adolf Hitler and Aleister Crowley in a superhero cage match in a comic book that Doug once wrote to the emergence of crypto fascism among QAnon, among left-wing conspiracies and new thought, pandemic and Jeffrey Epstein, all the way to digital memes as occult sigils, the end of the world, Atlas Shrugged in space, and the possibilities for Team Human and what it means when all of us stop running, stop struggling, stop trying to escape where we are and who we are and show up together in the deep now for ourselves, for each other and for the world. Enjoy. Welcome to Homegrown Humans. Thanks for having me. It was very sweet. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted for us to get to talk again. Um, I've been following your work for a long time. I think way back from, I, I didn't get to read it when it, when you published it, but I went back and, and found it was the Ecstasy Club. So you're accounting of some of the formative stages of the rave scene, um, program or be programmed, which I think is was prescient. It was basically making a case that as we've moved into this digital age, we're either consumers or creators of digital content, that there's a loss between analog and digital as you take the full complexity of the world and compress it into pristine zeros and ones. I remember reading that a decade ago giving it to my kids, sharing it with other parents, and now in the age of social dilemma, that, that um, 
documentary that our friend Tristan Harris has just launched that's gone absolutely viral. I think you were you were there, yeah, a good 10 years early and you're throwing rocks at the Google bus, which at the time was almost calling attention to and pointing out something that had only really just started happening. Mm. <laughs> the sort of extreme gentrification of the Bay Area and San Francisco right. and the and the beginnings, the very beginnings of the cracks of the silicon utopianism, but you nailed it <laughs> and now we're in the thick of it. Um, and and most recently with Team Human and and your you know open-hearted call for I think a greater a greater rallying cry than just fragmented individual consumerism. That so, about says it. Yeah, that about says it. <laughs> um, and and so there's there's a beautiful overlap, obviously, between the the title of this series, Homegrown Humans, and mm -hmm. your most recent work, and even your podcast on NPR One uh, of Team Human. And so I think I think we're we're really converging in this same neck of the woods, and and that overlap is is strong enough that I actually open my next book uh, with that account of your medium article from a couple of years ago uh, where I, and I, I think it ended up getting its title shifted a couple of times but didn't one of them become survival of the richest yeah okay and and you were you were telling the story the quite unnerving story in fact i'll tell you what i you're here so how about you tell the story because it, it i remember reading it and it came out after evan osnos's uh New Yorker article from the year prior, like Doomsday Prep for the Super Rich, right. and, and then yours was a was a was a coda slash bridge to where we are now. Just t tell us what that experience was. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, like you, I get I get asked to speak about things all the time just because of all the digital type books I've written, and um, I was invited to do a talk about the digital future, for you know, and I assumed it would be the same old kind of group of bankers and digital investors and whatever wanting to hear something out in a, you know, beautiful resort out in the West. And, um, you know, and it turned out, you know, I was in the green room waiting to go on and they bring these five dudes in there. Uh, and they wanted me to just, they just sat at the table in the green room and that was the talk. It was them peppering me with these really, uh, you know, binary questions about the future. You know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, virtual reality, augmented reality. You know, uh, 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 gosh, uh, uh, you know, augmented humans, or or you know, or you know, it's like genetic augmentation, or uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 nano augmentation. It was like all these weird. And then finally, one of these guys, you know, it was almost like you know camera tilt right and there's the one guy in the corner and he's like alaska or new zealand and it was uh the whole rest <laughs> of the hour i spent with them was answering questions about their doomsday scenarios you know and i, I honestly I, I honestly don't know if they were kind of faking each other out by asking questions or if they were actually building them but it sounded to me at least at the time that they were actually building these bunkers that they were, were, you know, while I saw them as the most powerful people in the world because they're billionaires or, or at least close to it, you know, and these are the winners of the digital economy, that uh, at the same time, their best they can do is prepare for what they see as the inevitable collapse of civilization, right? They're preparing for what they called the event, 
which meant the the biological virus, the electromagnetic pulse, the social unrest or economic crash or climate change catastrophe that renders life as we know it, you know, untenable. And they'll have to go into these, you know, underground eco farm, uh, uh, you know, or uh, uh, oil tanker out in the middle of the ocean, you know, with some ocean homesteading thing. And the question they got to that we ended up spending the most time on, the most, it was the most uh, uh, kind of walking dead-like scenario question was, how do I maintain control of my security force after my money's not worth anything? You know, so they were talking about- That's you know, the downside of zeros and ones, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you, can un you can unplug them. So do I get a shock collar or do we use medication or am I the only person with the combination to the food? You know, and I was kind of you know, half tongue in cheek in my sort of team human -y way. I said, well, you know, if you pay for your head of security's daughter's bat mitzvah today, you know, they'll be <laughs> friendly during the apocalypse. You know, and it was my way of saying, look, rather than figuring out, envisioning yourself in the negative future, how are you going to... Do nice things now, and it will engender the spirit <laughs> that you want when that happens. But hopefully, it'll make it so it doesn't have to happen at all. And you know, for me, the the result of that uh, conversation was realizing that these guys are utilizing an uh, an insulation equation. That they're looking at how much money do I need to earn in order to insulate myself from the reality I'm creating by earning money in that way. So it seemed like Western civilization in true end stage, that they want to build a car that could drive fast enough to escape from their own exhaust, just get away <laughs> from the repercussions of their own externalities. And I, I realize that the job now is not to help them do that, but to try to convince people to you know, spend their time and energy and resources making the world a place that you don't have to escape from, and that that's actually a more efficient process than, <laughs> than building your escape pod. Well, you kind of have to think that, right? I mean, I mean, I remember being blown away and humbled by a buddy who was a marine biologist <clears throat> in school, and he was trying to have a saltwater aquarium. And it turns out that a saltwater aquarium is infinitely harder than getting your goldfish at the county fair and dropping him into a boat and changing the water every day. It's, it's you're simulating the ocean. And it basically requires, it, it's high chemistry. I mean, you almost need a PhD and you definitely can't phone it in. And you're like, oh, wow, simulating a natural fecund environment is actually impossibly difficult. I and know. It, it's like right. biosphere. You know, the biosphere experiments <laughs> they did in the 80s and 90s out in Arizona with billions of dollars on Earth, you know, in the most yeah. friendly environment. You could plan for years and build this thing. It failed. They did it twice and they couldn't get the oxygen balance right. And it's like, if you can't even do that on Earth, they, how are you going to go do that on Mars? You know, it, it's, it's a lot <laughs> a lot to think about. Well, dude, I mean, I, I had I had a, a an analog experience to yours uh, just a couple of weekends ago, and we just happened to be socially hanging out with some of the PayPal mafia guys, right? So the mm. original crew that came up with Peter Thiel and Elon and all those, and we were having this sort of conversation, except it started with the idea of like, what have you been doing in your spare time? And it turns out that like the hashtag like van life, you know, of like people buying old Volkswagens, you know, this and that and bumbling around and it kind of go see America, Jack Kerouac yeah. way. They had their own version and it wasn't even like the Mercedes Sprinter van, you know, like the bougie upgraded, you know, VW bus. It was 
40-foot luxury rockstar motor coaches with private drivers. And these guys were rolling around in between their fellow ultra-high net worth buddies compounds and just on these movable feasts of these hedonistic bacchanals. And then one of them was like, yeah, but, at the, and, and I was kind of asking, I was like, do this very question. Like, don't you think there's things to fix or don't you think there, there's things to save? Can we do this? Can we rally? And one of them kind of looked at me and he goes, he goes, yeah, I'm basically with Elon on this one. I think we're going to Mars. And then he kind of laid out the rest of his cards. And he's like, he's like, basically, he goes, this, and he goes, and it's, it's profoundly, it's an American, it's a profoundly American thing we're doing. Because the founding fathers, they got on their little ships and they sailed for three months across the ocean to found the new world. And we're just going to be on a little spaceship for six months to get to Mars. And I was like, well, what about, what about governance? What about who gets to come? You know, who doesn't get to come? All these kinds of things. And he's right. like, yeah, he goes, yeah, basically, I mean, this is just true in nature. I mean, just all cells have walls. And, and then was basically talking about a corporate state, not even, not even some civil attempt at a civil society, purely a corporate city, libertarian city state run by these fuckers. And I was like, oh my God, Galt's Gulch is on Mars. Like this is literally Atlas shrugged in space. Right. And it, and, and it gave me chills and kind of broke my heart a little bit, kind of like crimped my evening, <laughs> you know? Cause I was like, for fuck's sake, that is a heartless, Asbergery, sociopathic position. Yeah, and then then the thing that they 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 don't ask themselves, and I guess this is the main question I'm asking myself now, in my work is, right? These guys came over from England and Europe to America with this way of doing things and always looking for the new new thing and moving west and creating novelty and Western frontier, and they when it fails, which it did. This is a failed nation. This is a failed project right now. They think, oh, well, let's go do it again somewhere else <laughs> rather than, oh, wait a minute. Maybe this doesn't work. Maybe we should try to engender a different approach to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to life. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, I mean, let, let me run this by you and see if it tracks for you, because my sense was is that we've had like if, if meaning 1.0 was organized traditional religion. Right. And its promise was salvation, but it was salvation to the elect. Right. And yeah. meaning meaning 2.0 was basically neoliberalism and it offered inclusion. Right. But at the cost of salvation, like we'll give you the phone and the vote and the vac and, and the vaccine. Right. And the refrigerator. But we won't tell you what it all means. And it seems like we have obviously meaning 1.0 started collapsing sooner. That was the rise of the nuns and the collapses in organized religion. But in the last five years in particular, we've seen this hyper accelerating collapse of the neoliberal promise. And it feels like when, so the, when both of those collapse and the center cannot hold, we end up with fundamentalism on one side, people doubling down and retrenching on orthodoxies and nihilism on the other. And both can give rise to rapture ideologies. You know, one is old school. This is the, the world is doomed. The rapture is coming and my people are saved on the other side. So never mind the collateral damage. And the other is a techno utopian rapture. They got the ones we've just been talking about, which is ecosystemic, geopolitical, climactic collapse. The saved are the brilliant, talented, brightest, you know, top 0.01%. And never mind this planet because we run the numbers and it doesn't pencil out. And that's creative disruption for you. Right. Well, then there's this other group 
that that now I would say is the sort of Trumpian group, but it came through uh, uh, Norman Vincent Peale and The Secret and Madame Blavatsky and Frank Baum, maybe all the way back to the Masons who helped found well, wait, America. Tell, what's, what's Frank Baum's role in that? I was tracking Frank Baum was a theosophist, the follow the yellow brick road. Um, he was the window dresser at Wanamaker's, who then wrote The Wizard of Oz. And Wizard of Oz combines sort of Calvinist extreme, uh, extreme capitalism with uh, uh, theosophy, with Madame Blavatsky. And I did not uh, know the, the, the theosophical connection to The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, so he was a thinking makes it so. That's why, Dorothy, you just close your eyes and click your heels and get what you want. You know, and that's what... Norman Vincent Peale taught in Power of Positive Thinking, right to Donald Trump himself, who was sitting in the pews. They went there every yeah. Sunday to yeah. the collegiate whatever church that was. And uh, so there's this other kind of magical thinking. Uh, it's, it's a third pillar, and I and I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just going to burn itself out now, or maybe it's part of part of fundamentalism, but not really. Fundamentalists don't believe if you wish it. It is so. Mm -hmm. well, maybe they kind of do. But I'm looking at, I, I feel like Trump is not one of them. He appeals to them, but that that he's he's kind of trying to do the secret. He's kind of trying to do uh, oh, yeah. some right-wing version of a Deepak Chopra, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey kind yes. of. As the, whole, as the whole prosperity gospel, like the televangelist preacher woman that he's got on board, like yeah. that whole subset, that genre. Um, the gospel of wealth and prosperity stuff is is, right. is thick. Have you have you but seen? But I guess that? that's evangelical. Finally, because you get the thing. You you. Yeah, but but I mean, to your point about Calvinism, right? It's it's not Calvinistic, right? The idea of we no longer need to bow and scrape, and we no longer need to gener to to demonstrate our good works and our Christian humility. We actually get to live our hashtag best life, <laughs> right? And, and and everything I give out, I get back ten times. So like, cough it up in the collection plate, folks. And right. You two, you two one day will be as deserving as I. Like, it's an. Have you seen the the mighty gemstones? I think that's what they're called, right? Yeah. Show? Yeah. Exactly. So like, just pitch yeah. perfect. Commentary yeah. I know, and that's you know, I mean, that's a good business. You know, God is the best product, right? Is the ultimate product. Well, actually, I'll tell you what, you know, there's a buddy of mine, Jules Evans. I don't know if you read his conspirituality pieces that have been going around, no. like the, the Nazi hippie movement, like the conflation of the far right, the magical thinking on right. far right and far left and how it's now meeting in pandemic and even QAnon conspiracy thinking. So you just blew through a century and a half of really important references. And, I, and I'd, I'd love you just to kind of go back. Let's just walk, you know, viewers and listeners through this because you mentioned late 19th century, the rise in spiritualism and the advent of new thought. Right. It feels endemic to most of the thinking viruses that we're experiencing today. The fuzzy logic, the, the leaps of faith, all and, and the conspiratorial nature of it. So let's let's just unpack that for us because it's it's got such an impact in the Instagram self-help, personal growth, psychedelic, transformational community. And now it's weirdly susceptible to additional snippets of code from the crypto Orion fascist accelerationists. And you're like, how the fuck did that happen? Right. I mean, I get, well, part of it is America. You know, it's so embedded in American America. code. You know, it was it, growth-based corporate capitalism is based on the faith that there will always be a new market, always be more. 
it has to be because you're going to have to pay back more than you borrowed. It's sort of the the <laughs> the promise of central currency. And it worked when you had colonialism, when you could take over other countries and enslave their people and steal their resources. But then what do you do when you run out of places and they start pushing back? You know, I mean, and they hadn't by then, I guess. We were still pretty colonial when these these came up. But they were... Um, they 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 were they gained so much power because they helped stoke consumerism. You know, Frank when when Frank Baum was working at Wanamaker's, his whole idea he was the one who invented the departments in the department store that you would have a bridal shop and you would make the bridal shop so complete you would have these models and mannequins with every friggin' bridal thing the purse and the and the and the. They have little bridal purses, you know, that they carry and and special shoes and veils. And then if you don't have this and a book and a that so that someone walks in and will feel incomplete without purchasing the whole thing that the idea of cre you create these worlds. And he wrote about this. You create worlds to make the consumer feel inadequate. It's not just oh, no to way. it's not just to make them, you know, feel like they're in a Disney paradise, but that the only way to truly participate is to get all the things or the men's haberdashery uh, uh, department. <laughs> I would imagine like Ethan Allen doing like living rooms and bedrooms and that whole thing is yeah, in that vein. Yeah, so that you can upsell. Right. Well, have you thought about what lamps you're putting on those nightstands? <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, the lamp. The lamp. Oh, without the lamp. I mean, it's not really a nightstand. You know, it's that. <laughs> that. So this this sense of, of longing, of wanting, of uh, uh, there's a great book by, what's it, William Leach called Land of Desire where he really ties together these new faith, new faith ideas and the, the birth of American consumerism. And then, of course, it fits to what you were saying, that if you are good with God, then you're going to be able to have this stuff. That's how you know you're good with God, is you've got plenty of good, plenty of good things. So it's a, it, I, would, I would think Madame Blavatsky and, and Mary Baker Eddy and those, those folks would be rolling over in their grave to see where their work was taken, but it's all based in a in, in magic, in occultism, in thinking makes it so. And I mean, oddly enough, you know, I just did a podcast with Grant Morrison, the, the comics artist, and kind of returned to sigil magic just in the last couple of weeks. He has? Uh, I have. You have. Yeah, just, I mean, it was not, it kind of half as a joke or whatever. But after the first debate... Well, and just, just describe what, what sigil magic is to folks. Oh, well, sigil, I mean, there's a lot of ways. But basically, it's, um, it's a magical practice, like an occult magical practice where you envision a thing and then you can, like, make a little drawing or create a little sign or take the words of a wish and combine them together into a symbol and kind of focus on that in order to... Um, uh, conjure the future or the thing that you want. I mean, you know, you, 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 it could be a silly thing like, oh, I want a girlfriend really bad. So I'm going to, you know, take the letter G, L, F and D and put them together and make a thing and then set it on fire or masturbate over it or have it put it under my pillow and have a dream. And then, you know, hopefully manifest manifest I, that thing. I remember that that brings to mind that I forget what it was it was like a twilight zone but it was on HBO I forget what it was called but it was basically a woman with a pentagram and cornmeal and candles and she was doing the lottery tickets and she uh -huh. was getting them and she gets the right number and then the right number and then the right number and the right number and then the final number it breaks wrong 
And then, and she's shocked because she's getting so euphoric and she's so shocked and it breaks wrong. But then, then it pans back and it shows that in the, the, the apartment right beneath her was a dude doing the same magic and he had bent the final number. So, so I, I had no idea we were going to get into this neck of the woods so quickly in the, in the conversation, but I'm, I'm glad to because one of the things I noticed in your bibliography was Alistair and Adolf. Alistair and Adolf was a graphic novel that... Um... It's funny. I was at a um, I was at a party, a, a DC Comics party at Comic Con, and I was there with like Grant Morrison and Dean Haspiel and some of the great comics people, and we're Ooh. sitting there drinking and um, playing this weird game about ultimate superhero matchups. So it was like <laughs> you know. Jesus against uh, Superman, or you know, or you know, whatever, Batman versus Genghis Khan. And then I said, <laughs> "Well, what about Aleister Crowley versus Adolf Hitler?" And then Grant turns to me and he goes, "Ooh, you have to do that one." And um, so then I thought, "All right, I'm going to do a comic book that's Hitler versus uh, Aleister Crowley, the great uh, yeah, British occult magician." Um, against Adolf Hitler. And then I started doing historical research and I found out they had met, you know, two well, That's times. what I was going to say. I was like, didn't that actually almost kind of happen? And it did. And it turned out that Ian Fleming, who was working for the MI6 or five or eight or whatever it is, um, Secret Ser Her Majesty's Secret Service, the guy who made up uh, 007, that he was, he was charged with enlisting Crowley into fight to fight an occult battle against Hitler and and Crowley was one of was was the guy who falsified the star charts that were sent to Hitler the astrology charts to get him to goad him into making certain military moves that were against his best interests so it was a whole and real thing and plus um, uh, Crowley was doing actual sigil magic. In other words, he was creating spells and writing diagrams and special poems. He's the guy that came up with the vias for victory um, uh, uh, hand signal, which was supposed to be the counter sigil to Adolf Hitler's, you know, Zig Heil hand, you know, it was scissor beats paper, you know, it's kind of a, it was a fun, a fun thing. But, um, so then I, so, I so wait, so, so you're saying that, that he came up with that and then somehow that got to Churchill. Yeah. He delivered that Ian Fleming was the, um, the go between and he would write these victory poems and come up with all this stuff. But yeah, vias for victory was, was, uh, uh, Crowley sigil and had to do with the V and the the woman's vagina and it was all this. Of course um, it did. <laughs> you know. Of course, every, everything he does does. Um, but yeah, it was it was a a, a, a highly advanced uh, a use of uh, you know symbol or an imagery and he did all this. He he had all these. Uh, there's a lot of writing on what he meant, what he meant by it, and it fits into these bigger charts and things. And he wrote poems, you know, England will not will not fail, and you know, a bunch of stuff. But yeah, he was involved in that. So I wrote a um, a, a graphic novel, really, uh, where I had it it be um, George Patton sends this young uh, army lieutenant to enlist. Uh, to enlist Crowley, because I made it about the sort of American who falls into the uh, the Crowley world. But the idea there was that that Crowley's techniques end up as American corporate advertising. That this <laughs> sigil magic, creating a sigil, is yeah, creating it's a logo type. Yeah, right. It's a logo type, and uh, and I was really looking at what happens when these logos migrate 
to the internet and we give them life, when the logos become like AIs and can then uh, continue the sigil, continue the magic, but without human intervention anymore, where, where will that go? Hmm. Yeah. And did you hear of like, so, so on that thread of World War II and kind of like, you know, non-ordinary or occultish warfare, um, Sri Aurobindo down in India, and, and I think in conjunction with Blavatsky, right? They were doing, they were sort of dueling it out with the Nazis in the astral realm. Mm. And at least, you know, nominally that was their yeah. experience and what they were intentionally doing. And, and I always thought like, I mean, how would, how would you think of this thought experiment? Because it's very easy to, to succumb to new thought thinking, grandiosity of impact, like we are pulling the strings on the highest level. And I always thought like a thought experiment would be like, well, Sri Aurobindo versus Alan Turing, you know, <clears throat> cracking enigma. Like both were in the realm of the imaginal. Both were conceptualizing things that didn't yet exist. And both were instantiating on behalf of a cause. Who did more? And do we have any unconscious biases towards the romantic, the oriental, you know what I mean? I mean that in Edward Said's yeah. you know, terminology, but like that versus just straight up ingenuity and brilliance that tyranny. And, then, and I wonder, you know, as you speak, I wonder if the modern ethereal realm is the meme space of, you know, Twitter and, and, and Facebook, if that's where you launch a sigil. So it becomes, you know, so much more, um, tangible and visible. And then the other other question I keep wanting to ask is, uh, and maybe it's because other people have finally come on board, right? There's the social dilemma people who are talking about the ill effects of Facebook and all, is mm -hmm. are we overestimating all, the, all this? In other words, is Facebook and Twitter just our excuse for being fucking shitty, horrible people believing crappy things? <laughs> you, know? you know, do the kids who launch Pepe the Frog really have a cult power over the American psychology? Well, I wanted to ask you about that one in particular, actually, because is, is it George Lakoff? Who, who is the fellow yeah, that did that? about framing and stuff and lang about linguistic it. framing. So, it's, it, I mean, yes, that is Lakoff. And then this is a different fellow that I'm thinking of, but it's very close. But he basically wrote Trump and, and Metamagic or Trump and Meme Magic. It's a, it's a fascinating book. He's mm. actually at, um, I think he's at London School of Economics or so he's somewhere over in the UK, but deeply schooled in the occult and did a breakdown of 2016 election and how the Pepe the Frog and basically the chaos magicians and the Evola, the Italian sort of fascist mystics and, right. and this whole neck of the woods, it may not be that there's a truly like mustache twizzling villain or cabal. And on the other hand, to what you said, the digitization of, of sigils in meme magic and the ability to instantiate, even if it's ironic, you know, and one removed, um, ideas, impulses, suggestions that might have been, um, you know, abominable, heresy, you know, extreme racism, extreme anti-Semitism, extreme misogyny, you know, take your pick, but always plausibly deniable and yet still effectively psychoactive. Like, what, what do you say, right? Exactly. Just because you say wink, wink, nudge, nudge before and after, it doesn't mean the like, substance okay just kidding this doesn't mean anything but it kind of does now right yeah i know it's scary and they can take that they can take that clip and now say you're a white supremacist right yeah exactly which is a little bit like looking at um beyonce and jay-z videos for signs of illuminati right because you'll find them they're yeah. everywhere yeah, yeah, yeah so so are, what they, are they everywhere because they're everywhere or are they everywhere because they're everywhere <laughs> <laughs> that's that's 
One never knows. But, you know, I look at this. So I look at QAnon now. And I mean, and I understand some of the the impetus for that, you know, the, the neoliberal cabal and Epstein was a bad person and all that. But when I look at QAnon and I, as a, as a Jew, I understand that most of QAnon comes from Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a, you know, 1800s uh, czarist Russian, you know, piece of propaganda saying that Jews uh, uh, kill Christian virgins for the blood at Passover and stick it in their matzah. And now the QAnon thing is that the, the pederasts kill the children and take some vital brain fluid or something. Adrenochrome. Chrome yeah. Or something. Yeah. It's awesome. I thought, that, so I thought you'd develop black and white photography with that, but that's something. <laughs> <laughs> or didn't Paul Simon, you know, something about right, that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, no, apparently it's something. So, but, but it was like, it's so lifted from that. And then I wonder, well, is that really amplified by our technologies and all, or would they have gotten it mm -hmm. anyway? You know, well, that hard was like, to know. There was a question, um, who is it? Caveat Magister, who was one of the kind of trickster old god of Burning Man, right? And mm -hmm. so he's very much comes out of the Cacophony Society and a lot of that kind of, you know, theatrical punk, which I think is, was it? I think that's that entire movement saving grace, by the way. I think if it had been purely a psychedelic hippie dance rave thing, it would have crawled up its own asshole and died at least a decade ago but right. the punk rock trickster element like the moment anybody's getting a little too pious anybody's getting a little too self-satisfied or certain just blow it all up you know? yep. and that in some ways that's what saved the 60s for me is that you had paul krasner and robert anton wilson doing oh, operation yeah. mind fuck that you have yes. you know abby hoffman going to the pentagon and holding hands and trying to raise the pentagon or threatening that they're putting acid in the you know washington dc water supply and you know Operation Mindfuck was about destabilizing consensus reality, getting people to wonder for just a second. You know, yes. Krasner's the guy that said he published in The Realist, he published that Jackie O, um, after Kennedy was shot, Jackie O was on Air Force One when they were flying the body back from Texas, and she walked in on, J, on, on LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, penetrating the exit wound in JFK's skull. Mm. Right? And... It was like the first fake news and people didn't know if it's real or not because it played into some of the rumors about, you know, that that Lyndon Johnson used to show his Johnson a lot because he apparently had a very big penis and he was outrageous and that it was part of a cabal or he was part of the group in this CIA that killed JFK. And um, and he he meant it both as a joke and satire, but he also uh, they, they intentionally meant to destabilize our grasp on reality as a way of, of tweaking us and breaking us free, right? Yes. As giving yes. us a little bit of an acid trip. And now it feels like it's the right that knows how to do that. And the left, it's, we've gotten so fucking serious, you know, with all of our, our and I understand but <laughs> their word, the word police that I'm so in any kind of a left wing event, I'm so careful not to social signal either, but not to say anything that could be construed as anything. You know, and it's it's hard even saying I don't want to say anything that's construed as anything could be construed as like now I'm IDW or something. It's like silence it's is really, violence, man. Right. It's hard. <laughs> Everything is violence. And I'm so not violent. I'm, and I'm really trying not to be. And then whatever I mean or my intention doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, now it's like, well, you stepped on the ant, buddy. I don't care if you tried to avoid him. You stepped on the ant. Now he's dead. Um, but I didn't even step on an ant. I'm I, I'm. Uh, so yeah, yeah, when, I mean, when, there's author response, there's reader response, there's textuality. Like there's there's all things from like 
good tools of postmodern literary criticism. It's what I learned in college. Exactly. About They're just out the window. Stuff. They're completely out the window. Like, shouldn't right. we, like, if, you, if you've misread me and I am the author of a word, whether it's a tweet or it's a podcast or it's a whatever, you can say, this is how it landed for me. Awesome. You can say, these are what the words actually logically said. And then you can pretend, if you give a shit, you can actually inquire into authorial intent. And somewhere, somewhere between all those, we get to consensual context-bound truth. Right. But people now are just saying, I took it this way. Right. Boom. And I don't know, you know, and I, I, I actually, you know, spoke with um, Helen Pluckrose and about this. Uh, she wrote a book called with, um, with um, someone even more famous than her. Um, I've got the book there, a book called Critical Theories. Hmm. No, Cynical Theories. And it's looking at how um, postmodernism went from being an art critic, an art critique to being a, a critical theory, to being a social theory. And then when you apply it to real world stuff, you end up in this kind of ontologically relativistic haze where whatever I'm perceiving to be is what is and and you lose touch with conditions on the ground. So it's like universal social justice goes away and all you have left is the individual intersectional justice that are all kind of competing with each other. And, and, and for me, I think what happened to both the right and the left, and this is still new thinking, so it might be wrong, but I'm thinking it's cybernetics is what fucked it all up for them. So cybernetics, what, what Norbert Wiener wrote about in the 1950s that was gonna happen, once you had computers and robots getting feedback, you have feedback and iteration. And when you have systems that are getting feedback, it gets really hard to tell what's the cause and what's the effect, who's doing what to whom, what's the subject and what's the object. It's back to reception theory, that the audience yeah. is active by how they choose to interpret it. But once it's digital and it's feeding back so fast, Am I tweeting to you or are you tweeting to me? Am I reacting to your tweet or are you co-tweeting on what's happening here? Yeah, well, you know, what, what, no who, what was the prime mover? We can't we can't right. ever track it back to prime mover. Yeah. Right. So there's no call and response. It's all just response, 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 response. And I think that's part of where what what's gotten us untethered. Hmm. So basically. Maybe, yeah. But maybe there never was a prime mover. Maybe this is the way it really was. And it's just been a convenient fiction that, oh, this guy's in charge. We're following him. You know, we want to recursivity. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness gracious. So, so on all that, I mean, it does, it feels to me like there's something resembling almost like an intertwingularity right now. We're not, there's not a singularity, you know, and it's like, Everybody's mythopoetics are smashing and crashing into each other, canceling each other out, doubling the amplitude in other places. And we've got, you know, red pilling in the matrix, which for 20 years was a symbol of Gnostic initiation and is now a misogynist troll rallying cry. You've well, it's got black pilling. Isn't those guys black pill or is it a different color? I thought black pilling yeah. is what they do. Oh, we yeah. do red pilling. They do black pilling. Oh, fascinating. Isn't it? Well, I mean, but that's I only know... my little crowd, I think. My crowd oh, says that red pilling is still cool, like Matrix, like see through the thing. But black pilling is like QAnon pilling. Oh, beautiful. So, so I mean, or not beautiful. <laughs> did, I did I just say in an excitable soundbite that QAnon was beautiful? I think I just did. Um, and then I just did it again. So to your point about... <laughs> to your point, is this a but thing? Is this is, really a thing? But QAnon <laughs> is, I mean, for however damaging it is, QAnon is the first genuinely successful interactive fiction. Nobody knew how to do it, how to do an online novel, you know, and this is what you do. You do a puntalist kind of a thing. You drop, you do yeah. drops and your audience 
creates the narrative out of it. It's beautiful. And it, it, it has, it has promoted a, 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 a collaboration. QAnon people do what we learned in improv class. They do yes. And yes. Yeah. And you know what I mean? They never negate. It's like, yo, right. So COVID came to get to, to let us put up 5g towers and it's caused by 5g and Soros paid for it, and and it's like, and it all, and the Chinese did it, and Bill Gates is a pederast, and that, and it's like, wow, and even if they're all internally consistent, it kind of or inconsistent, it, it doesn't even matter. It's all. No, I mean, Black and, Black Mirror Bandersnatch has got nothing on this, you know. Oh, as, not, far, I know. <laughs> as far as just forked forked self or code generated uh, narrative. Yeah. Yeah, but it is, I mean, if it weren't so, uh, you know, uh, uh, frightened and hateful, it's it's a state-of-the-art, you know, internet social experiment. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, so, so let, I want to I talk with you because one of, the, one of the most interesting threads that you've, uh, you know, piqued my curiosity on is the idea of utopian, because we're talking about mythologies, we're talking about these stories, and almost all of them, regardless of political persuasion, kind of follow the same format. They're like, things are really bad now, folks, and there's some explanation for the fall, like how we got here. And then there's a promised land, and if we do our thing together, then we all get to the promised land. And that can be blockchain, that can be psychedelic renaissance, that can also be QAnon, you know, outing all the pedos. It can be whatever it is. Follows communism, followed it, as did the Judeo-Christian thing. So it's like deep root structure of, you know, Western thought is the alpha omega utopian mm. play. I, I've heard you speak, you know, I think quite passionately about maybe even some of your time back in the day with Terence McKenna, some of the dialogues you guys had about, you know, time wave zero, the eschaton, these things. Mm -hmm. You're like, I used, to, I used to maybe be curious about that and other people were super passionate, but now you're beginning to view that with some skepticism. Let's talk about like crypto fascist utopianism. And, 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 and what are we seeing these days? Because it feels like some of the best laid plans, there's a lot of enthusiasm right now, and, and they don't necessarily all pencil out if you've studied the history. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I think, I, I mean, I, the last time we got to chat, you were actively disabusing those triumphalist narratives for something that felt much more localized, much more decentralized, and ultimately much more humanized. Right. I mean, I always had problems with Terence's uh, narrative, because he would talk about the bottleneck at the end of time. I mean, I even, I even critiqued this in my 1993 book, you know, Siberia. Um, he talked about the bottleneck at the end of time, that time wave zero happens and he's got it all mapped out and we have all, all this really increasing novelty. And then there's this bottleneck before we reach the strange attractor at the end of time. And it seemed to me that he was saying that, I mean, he kind of was saying that only people who've had a sufficient DMT experience are going to make it through, you know, and that most people are not. And it's just... You know, and I was like, that's elitist, that's terrible. And he goes, no, it's not. It's just the way it is. It's just what it is. You know, if you haven't, if you don't know how to navigate this, you won't be able to make it through, you know? So, okay, so, so that feels energetically identical to the conversation I had two weekends ago, right, with one of those high net worth tech billionaires 
And he was just kind of, it is what it is. And that was that sort of almost Randian objectivism. They're like separate right. the from the chaff. Of course, we want the best and the brightest to reseed and regrow this thing. Like how, because, because, and again, back to our notion of how QAnon and Plandemic really brought far, light, far right, far left back together across a backyard fence of kookiness. Um, these, these, that's, this is what I mean about the crypto fascist thing. Because like you right. can have folks on the left and the right, weirdly, actually aspiring yeah. to something that is exclusive, that is elitist, and, and fundamentally sociopathic. Right, which is why at Bohemian Grove, you would see Henry Kissinger and Bill Clinton. You know what I mean? You'd see Jerry Garcia and Sasha Shulgin were at Bohemia Grove as well. So what is that? And this is a place, it's, for people who don't know, it's this you know, place where the, the, the ultra-fascist uh, uh, American dictator types and billionaires would you know, dance around in the, in the woods of uh, uh, California. You know, it's a sort of like or, a, or, a as, or as Nixon or as Nixon famously said, is there's 70 year old, you know, um, plutocrat Republicans with this strange preponderance of 20 and 30 something beautifully chiseled thespians hanging out with no women. Nixon on the Watergate tape like it was the faggiest goddamn place I've ever seen, <laughs> which could be another element of the esoterica. Right. I mean, the Templars, the Templars yeah. got routed for buggery. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, the Knights was, Templars. Yeah, oh. that was their number one charge, man. Oh well. So, so how does that fit with they QAnon allowed, and Jeffrey? That's and they Jeffrey should be Epstein. allowed to do. Um, of all things, to outlaw, you know. Okay. What's it a reach like around among good, friends? Especially, I mean, if it wasn't outlawed, you might not have all this sort of tech bro insanity either. They'd just be happily buggering. Um, oh well. But yeah. <laughs> You know, it's just a strange. I, I hadn't thought of it. That, I always assumed, but that's you know assumption. I always assumed they just hired you know hookers like uh, you know uh, uh, eyes wide shut. You know these mm. naked girls with feathers and things. But yeah, it kind of that makes sense. And I always wondered if Nixon was really in on this stuff, or he's just some Quaker who got mixed up in politics. And... Yes, <laughs> who had a few character flaws <laughs> and, and a will to power that made them all worse. Just put a crowbar in there and, and went right. for it. But positive, you know, Trumpian on a certain level, you know, about this in that that he's there himself as an individual. It's like he's not representing some cabal, some thing. I mean, they're trying to tweak him, but I don't think Trump represents anyone except a few international, you know, money laundering uh, 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 oligarchs. But well, look, I mean, um, I mean, okay, so I didn't know where this conversation was going, but I sensed that yeah. there was a little, there's a there's a little portal we could open up right here based on everything we've just discussed, which is yeah. you were talking about Eyes Wide Shut at the Bohemian Grove, right? We were joking about Aleister Crowley and we were exploring, you know, the, again, the sort of the, yeah, I would suppose the mystical fascist impulses yeah. that kind of linger around all this. Um, I'm, I've always wondered, like, is there a there, there, is there a unified feel of basically esoteric occult sex magic. I feel like um, ayahuasca may have in some ways replaced sex as the uh, occult gateway. Mm. And when I look at the folks- Say more, like, okay, well, that's an awesome thesis statement. Well, I look at the, the commercialization of ayahuasca you know, there's companies now who are getting involved in, you know, mushrooms and pot and 
ayahuasca as Com Compass as... Pathways just went public this month, and that's a Peter Thiel backed project. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So it's like. And then my friends who are in the more uh, in the ayahuasca movement, as it were, you know, the people who go down to Peru and do these things, they're sounding or, or a Williamsburg. lot like, I mean, I don't know that much about it, but they sound a lot like I did in 1993 when Wired magazine came to claim the Internet as a Nasdaq phenomenon rather than a Mondo 2000 phenomenon. Right. The Internet Me was meaning versus its libertarian decentralized beginnings into something that has corporate and market significance and impact. Yeah. Or not even libertarian beginnings. It's psychedelic beginnings. You know, uh, uh, we didn't we didn't uh, it, it didn't look like anyone was going to make money with this stuff. This was going to just, you know, wire up the guy in mind. And this was homebrew uh, club stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was a wild thing. And then they come along and say it's money. Same with ayahuasca. So it's like ayahuasca and and psychedelics. I always saw them as as a way of breaking capitalism and breaking intention and and the quest for gain and growth and all that exponentialism that it 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 doesn't make any sense out there. But then I start talking to people about Sasha Shulgin and his real work at Bohemia Grove. So Sasha Shulgin was a, a psychedelics chemist who was also a member of Bohemia Grove. And that, no, he was not trying to help civilization. What he was trying to do, apparently, um, was to develop a psychedelic that would have the psychedelic effects, but without the spiritual learning. So that you don't, you don't- Sasha was actually doing that? It depends who you talk to. You know, it depends who you talk to. The, the, and, some and, of the and, and that as his own, his own sovereign choice, or was that sort of, you know, as a contractor for some agency or entity? I guess as a contractor for some agency or entity. And then he didn't, he didn't go with the script, you know, and that's why he had a, I mean, that's why he had to release that book, you know, Fecal was him then releasing the data to us. So I think, you know, I think he had some deal with the devil and then it was like, oh my gosh, this is a deal with the devil. He probably had a reckoning. And then they made all the things he was trying to construct illegal. So he's like, okay, I'll just teach everybody how to make it. I'll give, I'll just publish the cookbook instead so that the information gets out there. But it, it feels like there's, there, there's this holy grail that they'll take, you know, they'll take ayahuasca and somehow make it, you know, microdose it in some way that it makes us better workers it gives us more utility value it lets us handle more stress but it's just the year of our ford and here's your soma yeah. right but we won't get but it'll be carefully regulated so you don't actually get the breakthrough you know because if you get the breakthrough then you're going to engage in anomalous behavior then you're going to have the real insight. engage in anomalous behavior that's awesome so so look you've you've got you've got a unique perspective because you were there at ground zero with the original rave scene and that transformational culture you know if, if lsd was to the hippie movement in the age of aquarius in the 60s you could make a pretty clear case that mdma in the late 80s to early 90s, especially in the sort of the warehouse and underground scene long before yeah. Electric Daisy Carnival and, and commodifications of that. You, you were there then, you're here now. What do you see are the similarities and the differences between these movements, between today's psychedelic renaissance and what you were witness and participant to back then? I mean, it's interesting. The 1960s psychedelic movement was partly the anti-war movement 
and partly the civil rights movement. They were sort of all part of the same thing. If you took acid, you loved black people and realized that they're, I mean, I don't even know if this is politically correct today, but you realize they're, they're equal to white people, that they're, they're hu fully human and we can love them and be with them. And you realize that the war was a bad thing and you really didn't want to go. And, <laughs> you know, that kind of sucks. It's violent and shitty. Um, and that we're destroying the planet. So there was a lot of politics wrapped up in psychedelics of the 1960s. The, the 1980s and 90s psychedelic revival was self-consciously apolitical. It was like they looked at the punk movement that just happened and it seemed so oppositional. And the idea was we were going to do it with no agenda. It was going to be pure. We're just going to go and we're going to rave. And you're not black, you're not white, you're not gay, you're not straight. We're all just people in this one great organism with no agenda other than to touch the aliens or, you know, to to unite, whatever it was. What, it what, was, was there some, was there some, some alien, alien iconography in the mix? Depend which rave you went to, but yeah, there were different rave tribes kind of. So there were rave tribes that were really just into make contact, you know, well, did, contact. And did, it, did it depend on substances? Cause I'm, I've never heard anything about MDMA having correlations to, you know, alien stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of alien stuff. Oh no. Way. Yeah. Yeah, there was alien stuff. There was sort of Hindu-y stuff that would come into it, a lot of them. And then there was the whole guy and fractal thing. You know, those were sort of, for me, and, and then there's the lovey-dovey, return to childhood, pacifier kind of stuff. But yeah, there were different themes that came through, but UFOs were a big one. There were a lot of raves I was at where the whole crowd, you have a thousand people are all kind of reaching up, trying to draw down Holy shit, no way. The fucking UFO or whatever it is, you know, the interdimensional UFO. But yeah, there was, the, there was the, a lot the of that hyper, contact. The hyper object at the end of time. Exactly. The hyper object, <laughs> which might be some Terrence McKenna machine elf. Is that a UFO? Is that an alien? Whatever. It's all the same something else. Um, so there was that. But it's interesting. But now I feel like the psychedelic movement has succumbed to utilitarianism. So there's microdosing, which will make me a better programmer. There's, you know, uh, ayahuasca. Therapeutic dosing that'll heal my childhood wound. Yeah. Right. And, or you do it with a therapist to get this thing. Or, and if you see friggin' Eric Schmidt going down to Burning Man or to South America, how could Eric Schmidt go and do ayahuasca or something and come back and still want to run a surveillance state? Right. How does that happen? And, Again, you know, it's the same question I asked myself in, in 1981 when I saw kids in an ACDC parking lot doing acid and like cracking beer bottles on their head is when I realized, <laughs> oh, it's not a drug. It's not the drug. It's, it's a, a, a hammer is just a tool, you know, like that, that, that chestnut. Yeah. You're like, Fuck. But it was a big it was a big realization for me that the drugs are not intrinsically spiritually positive. They're not. Well, yeah. I mean, what's his face? Who's the dude who ran um, the entire MK Ultra Acid Project? Who's the one? He was the head of that. You know, who was the one who, you know, uh, the then there Fort Detrick guy jumped or got pushed out of the New York window, right? When oh, he was yeah, about yeah. To blow the whistle. So his boss, who I, we'll have to go back and look his name, he dropped acid over two hundred times, and still was an evil shit, psychotic, and had Whitey Bulger. Somehow Whitey Bulger ends up in this story. And while he was either just a free monster or in the prison already, they dosed him 
multiple times. Right. So it goes back to set and setting. You know, it's and that's when Leary was right. You know, it's these are sacraments, but they're only going to work if you bring something to them. Same with the Internet. You know, if you bring, you know, surveillance, corporate capitalism to the net, you're going to end up in this psychotic state that we're in now as a civilization, having lived 25 years on a psychedelic substrate. I mean, yeah. duh. So this is where we're at. And that's why even the kids and sweet though they may be, the kids from inside mm -hmm. those companies who want to rescue us now that they've addicted us to this stuff, the social dilemma kids. It's like, yeah, but if you're really going to do that, then you've got to open your heart and open your ears to the other techniques. You don't double down. Oh, look, we've used this technology to program people into these horrible spaces and horrible mindsets. So let's use these technologies to program people into happy mindsets, into better ones. It's like, no, stop programming Just people. back away, back away back from off, the control buddy. panel. Yeah. Exactly. Back, take your hands off the control. Get your hands off. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking I. Yeah. Well, so, so I, I want to actually, I want to come back and, and, and stitch a couple of these threads together because um, there was this fellow, Caveat Magister, he's one of the old school Cacophony Society tricksters uh -huh. of the Burning Man scene. And he wrote a piece a year or two ago saying, you know, Burning Man is ruined. And it was it was perfect. It was pitch perfect because he's like, that's what everybody always fucking says, <laughs> you know. So he was demolishing that whole lament, right? And he was doing. He was saying it was ruined when we moved from the beach to the desert. It was ruined when we couldn't drive our cars and shoot guns. Right. It was ruined when the EDM, when the Goa, you know, trance dancers rolled in. And he goes, and it was ruined when the Instagram yogis and influencers and models rolled in, right? So he, he, he does this beautiful thing and he basically just said, you know, classic. It's always, we're in a perpetual state of ruin. Discordianism, what me right. way, right? Which I love. But yeah. this is what I wanted, when you were talking about memes and you were talking about digital sigils and you were talking about this and, and, and ayahuasca being our current sort of, you know, eaching crisis opportunity right. doorway. To me, there is something qualitatively different about the invasion of the Instagram experience. Because you basically have self as selfie, digital narcissism creeping into an experience that was fundamentally antinomian and fundamentally deconstructive of egoic identities. So there were avatars, you could be in cost, you know, you could be your, you know, playa name, mm -hmm. just like Comic Con, right? You could occupy and inhabit an alter ego. You could step outside of these things. And all of those other things, including sound camps and EDM and all this kind of stuff, they were nonetheless additive to the ecstatic and communal experience. Whereas Instagram to me feels qualitatively different. And what I've noticed is it's a lot more like Vonnegut's Ice Nine because it is basically super ego reconstituting itself out in front of even the best efforts to undo ego. So the Capitol Peak is near Aspen in Colorado. And it's got this knife edge ridge to a summit. And some asshats like five years ago shot themselves on their GoPros or their phones, shimmying along the ridge and then sitting on the summit. Tons of people watch it. And now Aspen Search and Rescue is overwhelmed because like in one May, they had 15 people peel off that fucking thing because they saw it on YouTube. And they're like, you know, this is, this is Thoreau. This is Muir. This right. is Go to the Wild Sublime. Boom, people are just saying, oh, I've seen it on TV. I can too, and I want my glory shot. And you know, the stories of dumb fucks falling off cliffs, getting their selfies is now a dime a dozen. So you're like, okay, so the natural sublime, off. Even the geotagging of like, here's this beautiful field of meadows, or here's this gorgeous waterfall. Instagram is ruining the backcountry. 
right. because because now secret spots are now getting mobbed because everybody wants them as their backdrop. Well, you know, people that have gone down to Peru for ayahuasca ceremonies are doing these breathy, heartfelt, almost Blair Witch in the Jungle posts like, I've just had my mind blown open and I've just been riding the anaconda. Come back, click on the links in the comments below, you know, see you next week at our retreat in Bali. And you're like, oh, fuck. You know, and the same thing with Burning Man, where sunrises, you know, sunrises used to be absolute like redemption church for the blessed. I would imagine very much like the best of your, your rave experiences. Mm. And meanwhile, you've got tech bro fuckwits coming in with their rented, rented model girlfriends. And servants. And $20,000 worth of costuming. Like definitely you didn't buy this on Etsy or make this at home. Right. And they're conspicuously dust free. Like they've been camping in an RV, they get there for sunrise and they have a professional photographer in tow. And you're like, this isn't barbarians at the gate. This isn't even money changes at the temple. It feels like the digitization of even our, uh, even the commodity of transformation is now so pronounced and so fast acting that we can't get ahead of the ice nine. It's consuming ourselves even faster than we can get away from ourselves. Unless, unless, tell me the unless. It was silly from the beginning. Unless it's like, okay, even nine people are going to get in their cars and drive all the way to the middle of the desert and do this thing that they should be capable of doing in real life. You know, it was like part of the problem with the rave was people would dance, you know, dance till four or five, six in the morning, and then they'd come down and still be fucking assholes to each other the next day, you know? They weren't fundamentally transformed. And it was part of what another one of the arguments I had with Terrence was whether um, taking psychedelics was uh, uh, irreparably uh, uh, dual. In other words, that it creates, there's my state... It, 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 or, or at least non-Buddhist. So it means that I'm here now. I am here now. Oh, I'm going to take this so that I'm not here now. So I'm. So, I want to change what's happening in order to. I want to now be something else. Mm -hmm. And I understand you're allowed to get up and say I'm sitting here. I want to get up and sit over there. So you could say, okay, I'm here. So I'm going to take this pill. So I'm over there. But you know what I mean. There's a bit of. Well, yeah, there's that. There's that original dissatisfaction with my life or the world or this present moment as it is. There's the reification of the thing that I believe will get me to someplace else. So that the, the fixation on the medicine or the compound or right. whatever it would be. And then there's also like, let's say you, both of those are true and it works. And so you're washed clean for a moment. You have your halo effect slash afterglow. You come back into the world like, I'm just going to love everybody up. I'm going to change the what, new thought. Right. Like now my mind has changed. I'm going to change my reality. Reality is generally a little more recalcitrant. And, and we start banging up against the density right. of and the and the fallibility of ourselves and other humans. And so at some point you run out of your afterglow. And then to your Buddhist point, there's the subtle subject like all, we are all one. Right. This is all love. And then this subtle subject object split comes back into the garden, which is I'm clean or awake or or enlightened or filled with love. And this this shit. These are the haters. These, this right. is dirty. And then you need, then you need the prophylactic shield. I actually need to protect myself from this dirty, yeah. impure world, whether it's with my meditation, whether it's with my Eckhart Tolle fucking tapes, whether it's or with my the next, fucking billionaire bunker. 
yeah, my billionaire bunker, any of these things. And I need to double down on those practices, which cut you back to the back to the slide, you know, top, back to the top of the slide of spiritual materialism and like choking right. trunk post kind of stuff. So it feels like, so, so this to me is that's, that's the rub, but I feel like you're, you're already exploring the resolution on the other side with this notion of team human, with this notion of kind of WYSIWYG humans, <laughs> you know, right, like, right. this is it. Right. So it is what that. it is, which I know is a catchphrase in the Trump era. But what if it is what it is, you know, and that's not so bad. Yes. So now how do we do that? So if we say and then, by the way, that is the essential thesis of homegrown humans, which is can we and Frank Baum, you know, can can we go home away home? Can we realize right. there's no place like home? Can we show up fully without without holding back or seeking to be someplace else? Right. That's what, that's what I say in, in the end of Team Human. And again, I quote Torah for this. But, um, you know, whenever one of the patriarchs or one of the heroes or whatever is called by God, you know, he says, Abraham, the, the character always says, Hineni, which means in Hebrew, it means here I am, here I am. And it's like, if God calls you, he knows where you are. I mean, you're going to say, here I am. Of course, he sees, he just called it you. You don't say, here I am. But what they're saying, I think, is, I am. I, I'm going to rise to the. I'm going to rise to the occasion of the now. I am going to. I am. Here I am. You know here, and and it's the hardest thing. It's the scariest thing for anybody to do to admit fully that they are. Just fucking here. This is. Okay, so here's the thing. So so now to me that I, I agree. Like that moment to me, Old Testament. It feels like Jonah. Right. He's like, I'm busy. I got shit to do. Don't give me a job. In fact, I, I, I don't even know the people in Nineveh, you know, and I'm kind of a big deal back home. And, and it's right. like, here's the mandate. And, you know, Abe Maslow famously talked about that, the Jonah complex, the fear of our own greatness, mm. you know, and that sense of like, could I keep this up? <laughs> you know, is this sustainable? And what would the neighbors think? You know, like, mm. what's it going to Thanksgiving is going to be awkward as fuck. Right. So like, so how do we do this? Because you've, you've, I think rightly pointed out the limitations of psychedelic utopianism, a la Terence McKenna. You've pointed out the, you know, criticality of set and setting, and the what do we do Monday morning? Like it doesn't matter how peace and groovy we were at Studio Fifty Four, <laughs> right? Um, and you've talked about this, you know, what's the right word? I suppose um, imminent humanism. Like, don't try and get away. Don't try and become. Don't try and transform. Let's do this thing. Right. And if you do that, I mean, not to not to just sell it, but you do that, then you fall into the infinite moment. Then there's nothing to get. There's no, you know what I mean? Then you could die in the next second and it doesn't matter because you've you're you if you really do it, I mean, which of course none of us, well, maybe some awakened dude can or or woman can, but but the more the extent to which you can do it is the extent to which you're actually living you're embodying your own experience of life. I mean, it's, you know, it's an aside, okay. but it's- So, so it, this is gorgeous. So, so that moment you, you talked about kind of witness, bearing witness to the deep now, like sort of coming, right. coming undone in time. Now, on the one hand, and this is the challenge with the Dorothy and Frank Baum, right? Like home away home, there's no place like home. On the one hand, she had to get the fuck out of Dodge to realize that Kansas is rad. And, right. So how do we how so you're on the one hand saying just be here now, 
right? <laughs> the old Ram Das thing. And on the other hand, holding that subject-object perspective, for me not to just get beaten down by the density, the grind, the monotony, and the, con and the constraints of this mortal coil. How do we do that? Do we, does the hero have to leave home in order to find it? And in which case, how do we get as many people around that loop as possible, as fast as possible? Or is that in itself, back to what you say, is well-intentioned misguided? Or is there, a, is there a love stick, you know, you can tap people on the heads with to say, you have everything you need. Let's, let's start here. What's your well, sense of that? My sense is if we are capable of doing it as a civilization, then individuals won't have to keep doing it anymore. Okay. You know, so this is the so de-emphasizing of, of mixed spirituality, of that kind of toxic combination of capitalism and, and Eastern mysticism and saying, actually, no, there's social structures, there's political controls, there's policy, there's... Yeah, and, and the individual would always go on the hero's journey, you know, since, you know, Sir Gawain's tales and, and before. There's the hero's mm -hmm. journey and you come back around. And we as a civilization have an opportunity to see, oh, wait a minute, we got all the way west to the edge of California... And now we can either do the hero's journey again and go to fucking Mars or as, a, as Western civilization sort of go Chinese and go, oh, oh, wait a minute. It's, uh, the subject isn't here. The landscape's what matters. It's the ground that we're in. We are all part of this one thing. You know, it's, I feel like in the West, we still don't know what soil is. We still think soil is dirt with some living things crawling around in it. You know, where soil is this living matrix. And once you understand what soil is, you realize, oh, my God, we're actually part of the soil, too. Um, OK, so now, let, now let's put this into real life and historicity, which right. is how. So, so that notion and, and for folks that didn't fully get your reference that that notion of a lot of Japanese and Chinese landscape paintings and those kind of things where there's those iconic waves or mountains or other things, you know, that they're absent, the kind of Western European subject, right? They, they are right. figuring ground. They, they are, they are right. the ground, right? It's because their language worked differently. They didn't use an alphabet, so they didn't end up as sort of noun verb, uh, yeah. you know, subject object as, as we are in the West. They have a, a if you show a painting to a, an Eastern person, you know, a, a picture of a, of a cow in a pasture, They'll not remember what the animal was. They'll say, this is a picture of a, of a pasture. And the American <laughs> will say, it's a picture of a cow. You know, yeah. And it's like, no, those are two different perspectives on, on reality. Yeah. And then so if that notion is, hey, we get to the edge of the West, just like Don Draper does at the end of Mad Men, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I'd like to buy the world of Coke at Esalen, where you're like, he has this semi-unity experience at you know, the center of human potential yeah. and turns it into the biggest jingle of all time. You're like, Ipso facto, <laughs> QED, we're yeah. done. Um, so how might we come back to ourselves, right? Come back to that beautiful moment that you hinted at, that, that acceptance and immersion into the now, becoming, allowing ourselves to notice ground, right? And not just frenetic figures at the same time that the ground is shifting beneath our feet. How do we pull this off in potentially increasingly volatile and destabilizing conditions that aren't infinite, that don't feel timeless, that feel like triage? Well, I mean, this is part of the, the stuff that, that gets me in a little trouble sometimes with the more rebel wisdom crowd. But this is where I feel like the, the 
social justice crowd gets it. In other words, that it's this very sweet but misguided pursuit as white, Western, well-meaning, male, spiritual, intellectuals that we really, 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 really do want to just figure it out. You know, we really want to figure it out and then and and bring it back and then tell all oh, this is all we have to do. And I think this is something that that is not figured out, that this is something that is experienced in through through a different comportment that we have to comport ourselves differently in a moment to moment way in our daily lives. We can't scale this. We can't communicate it. We can only do it person to person to person in, in through live embodied encounter. Beautiful, beautiful. Now let me juxtapose because this is my inquiry too. And this is why I so appreciate getting to talk with you about it because you've been, I think you've been blazing the trail. You've been signposting where this heads. And I think you started taking a stand for this several years sooner than I think many people did. I mean, there were obviously some of the deep ecologists and other folks who were kind of ringing these bells, but yeah. not, not in the noisy, frothy last decade, for sure. Um, and, and I'm thinking there's two books that I've been coming across recently in my own research. One is Tyson Yanka Porter's Sand yeah. Talk, right? Yeah. So beautiful book by an Aboriginal academic in Australia. And he's, he's he, I mean, the critique, your, your critique and his are very similar, which is just beware of the clever, chatty white guys, you know, looking to map, solve, scale, do all of these things. Slow the fuck down and yawn. Like it's the power of story. It's the power of our song lines. Hmm. It's the power of the dreaming, which is right. where we find the pulse. The rocks, you know, are alive and far more patient than we are. So there's that on the one side, which feels much like yours. And then I'm reading a book. I think the name, I think the guy's name is Jonathan Lear. He's at, he's at University of Chicago. And he wrote a book called Radical Hope. And it was basically a case study of the Crow Indian nation and Chief Plenty Coup, 1870s, 80s, moved to reservation life. And he talks about this break in their narrative. He said, basically, after we moved to the reservations, nothing happened. Like he told about hunting and raiding and, and you know and, and horse horse stealing and, and wars and battles until and then he said you know just this this end and he talked about this notion that radical hope is when the collapse of your culture the collapse of the frame the thick culture with, within which you make meaning is also going away and that you are no longer able to win or accomplish or ascend or achieve, take your pick of you know, happy outcomes because your old world is literally no more. And that radical hope is the, is the decontextualized abiding belief in good returning in some way in the future around a new formulation, around a new crystal structure that we don't yet know. Now, when I heard Yanko Porter's piece in Santo, he's obviously you know, charismatic, profoundly engaging. You're like, yes, yes, that's so awesome. But then I'm like, but then on the other hand, I mean, my, my grad work was in, you know, indigenous studies, the U.S. like seen this movie, you know, it's tragic. And, and those folks who, who just do the localized thing, those folks who do just do the human thing, get steamrolled every single goddamn time in history. Clobbered. I know, you know, because, and I was thinking about that too. It was like the, the Ottoman empire, um, 
had a currency that was a millet-based currency that was circular. Oh, wow. So it didn't require growth. So they didn't need to colonize other places. Where the Western uh, uh, late medieval and early Renaissance um, um, currencies were all uh, uh, interest-based. So they had to go out and colonize other places in order to, to feed their, uh, the, the growth requirement of their economies. And I started to think, well, the, the economies that are okay and circular and optimized for the velocity of money and promoting you know, the, the, the human spirit and, and, and harmony with nature, they're not going to have weapons. They're not going to have good kung fu. They're they're going yeah. to get clobbered by the ones who are putting, who are enslaving their people and putting all their resources into militaries. So it's like, shit, that's a problem. And you know, and I didn't and I, <laughs> like and shit. That's a problem. Nice people, right? They get clobbered unless like, where's Yoda? Where's the Force? Where's Kane? Where's the Kung Fu? Where's my Shaolin training or something? You know, my Rocky, so, my Rocky training montage, you know, to beat the Russian, we got to do something. Right. Or you end up, you know, so, and I understand, or you end up, you know, like Israel, which gets founded, you know, on these principles of peace and Torah and all, but it's basically, you know, Krav Maga on every corner, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, they've ended up, you know, being really a surly, a surly people, you know, and is that the only way to, is that the only way to survive in well, this world? Come on, this is it. Like we, we, we cannot punt right now. So this is the question. And, yeah. and, and, and you've written the follow-up, right? You wrote a follow-up to your piece about the hedge fund guys and, and right. the survival of the super rich lately post-quarantine. And you're like, you know, talking about the creative class fleeing, you know, the city in droves and heading to the Hamptons or the Berkshires or, you know, or, 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 or the Hudson Valley. Um, and you're saying, hey, I think we need to take our stand. I think we actually should stay put. You know, we should stop running. So what's that relationship? We've got Atlas shrugged in space, which is we are absolutely fucking off and we're taking the best, brightest and most beautiful with us because that's who we want as the seed bed for future. That's who We've, we want to fuck up there. But yeah, there's, that, there's always yeah. that. Right. Then there's then there's the the Ned Starks of the world. Do the honorable thing, but you might not have your head connected to your body in the morning. Yeah. And, right. And then there's, you know, this whatever, this gradient, you know, and then perhaps march to the streets on behalf of our brothers and sisters. Pay, you know, have have your security guards, bar mit daughters bar mitzvah. <laughs> you know, like there's the least of my brothers put down our nets, go be fishers of men. Like, let's do the right social justice, civil rights right. movement on behalf of us all. How do we pass that? How do we choose? Because obviously going down, like I'm always, I'm always interested in when, when do you get swept up in the tides and can you, can you, do you know enough to get above the high water mark? Right. There's that. And the other is when do you give away all your leverage? I mean, certainly in our world, right? I mean, you just even said, you're like, uh, I'm about to say something and sometimes I get heat for it over here and, but okay, I'm just going to say it right. At what point, do you give up your position as theorist, writer, you know, thought leader, and you show up to get shot with rubber bullets and tear gas because it's important to take a stand for that thing simply as a person. Now you've given up all your leverage. You're just one more body in the street. And on, at some point you need to be that fucking body in the street. How do you make sense of that? It's hard. 
I remember my dad told me never do the lottery. He says, if you think of yourself as any smarter than average, <laughs> don't do the lottery because you're just, you're now you're, you're throwing your lot in with, you know, stupid people, you know, so don't do it. You know, um, if you think of yourself as smarter than average, should you still march with the masses? Of course. Of course, because it's your body that's out there. You know, it's not their bodies. It's your body. So it's a. It's funny, but, you know, I'm a different. I have a different temperament. Right. So I didn't go to teach at MIT or Princeton or something. I'm teaching at City College. You know, it, it's it's important to me to be teaching first generation, you know, hmm. Americans and kids who's the first people in their family to ever consider going to college to be n not to be not to ice, not to ivory tower myself, but to make mm -hmm. it if I'm going to teach, I want it to be a part of connecting to the real world rather than I'm already disconnected enough. But it was the the it was funny. It was the earlier. Well, part. I, I, I just want to make sure that, yeah. that that's a that's a sincere moment and and not a humble brag. But just for anybody listening, just know you know, Douglas has an impeccable academic pedigree. He you know MIT identified him as one of the top fifty most influential intellectuals. So you're you're turning away. That's not a rationalization of the best job you could get. That was actually a, a principled decision on your part to to teach and connect with those communities of students. Right. And it's a privilege. It's more of a privilege. And once you understand, oh, my gosh, you mean when I taught, I taught adjunct at NYU, which I know is not you know, the best school in the world, but it's you know, still pretty elite. And I'm in there. I'm teaching these kids. And one of the kids who disagreed with me said, um, but why should we why should we believe you? You ended up a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, what kind Threats. of fucking title <laughs> values does this kid have? Oh my God! I was like, all right, fine. You're right. You're right. I'm wrong. I'm just a teacher. You're gonna get to go be a stockbroker or something, and 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 contribute to that the end of the world. But the first part of what you were saying, though, before to the 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 protest is what is what was. And now I, I forgot exactly. Well, it was sort of like what. To me, it's, it's the putting down your nets and going be fishers of men. It's, it's that Cohen. It's like, at what point do you give up the place you have investment, leverage, success, all those things, and you just go wandering off to pursue the thread of what you must? Right. And it's another way of asking that question is, you know, where do you draw your line? Yeah. You know, so it's like, oh, it's easy to march in solidarity with the worker while you have a 401k retirement plan that's invested in the very companies that you're protesting against. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, what's that? You know, mm -hmm. if you're really going to live it, then you can't have an S&P 500 index fund that if you've got $100,000 in an S&P index fund, chances are, I mean, I guess to me, it still sounds like a lot of money, but the idea that that 100,000 is doing more damage sitting there than you can correct going mm -hmm. and marching. It's like yeah. you take that money out of there and put it in local businesses or uh, in, in supporting real people in real places, you're doing a whole different thing. So, you know, and I think that a lot of people are sort of trying to, to create this balance between how much security do I need to feel safe enough to then go mm -hmm. 
and do what I realize is essential work. And I feel like we're running out of, um, we're running out of time and space to keep being as hypocritical as so many of us are. You know, when you, is it, oh, yes, I'm tweeting for social justice on a phone where that's polluting the world and that they use, you know, slaves to mine for the metals. And, you know, even Fairphone, you know, the project of, of Vasman Abel in, in, in Holland, he couldn't even make a phone that didn't have slavery parts in it. He calls it now fairer phone, fairer rather than fair phone, because he couldn't do it, even as an art project, because you can't get the stuff. So, you know, at a certain point, just if, if we lived meticulously, you know, or slowly, every day, live slightly more meticulously, I mean, it would do a heck of a lot. And I understand there's also the, the, one, of the, one of the problems with that argument is that we as individuals aren't really doing most of the damage. It's these giant companies that, that are doing it, but... All right. So fi final question. Is this well, the other, salvageable? But the other answer, okay. though, to that, the other answer to that question where I would, thought you were going with it was how do we move through the world um, when there's all of this, uh, all of this, uh, uh, these bullies out there? Uh, and I'm, I'm starting to wonder if Jesus understood it. Now, but Jesus had two main innovations for the Jews. You know, one, he was saying it was almost like to Tristan. Be beards and sandals. You know, you yeah, got to give them that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. One, he was saying, I mean, the Jews were all about ethics and trying to create enough rules and regulations to try to make their law, the Talmud, granular enough to deal with all the ethical situations of the world. And Jesus basically said, look, however long you work, however much you try, it's a beautiful effort. You're never going to get it all. At some point, you got to just love. You got to just feel it. In, and and the the right action will spontaneously happen in the moment. You know that you can't you can't litigate every situation. You know, and the other thing was he was a radical pacifist, a radical pacifist. So you know I've got neighbors who are already purchasing shotguns and stuff because they're scared of civil and, and war. And typically liberal progressives. Liberal progressives like, who are scared yeah. of like white guys in trucks coming with you know, whatever, chains and stuff, or maybe um, getting mistaken for bad white people by black people in trucks or, you know, marching or something. They're just scared of civil unrest and protecting their family and their food supply. And, and I was thinking, well, you know, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where if I learn to use a gun and then, then I was thinking, well, I still have, I have nunchucks somewhere in the attic that I had from college. <laughs> I got and bow like, hunting skills. I got nunchuck come out skills. With my nunchucks, yeah. or I think I have a throwing star somewhere too. I never learned, but I could learn to throw my throwing star. You could just brandish um, it menacingly. You know, exactly. that could be enough. <laughs> my throwing star, exactly. Or my nunchucks. I, I'll I cut always you. hit myself. I'll cut you. The problem. I hit myself with the nunchucks whenever I try to use them. So it's not a good, but the, the, the appropriate answer is, is rat, I, I, and that's when I realized, I think I'm a pacifist when it comes down mm -hmm. to it. I think that's where, uh, uh, and I got to read up on it, but, but it seems to me pacifism is just like, if you're going to do violence to me, you're going to do violence to me. That I, there is no. Yeah. Well, have you, have you come across, it's fascinating that you're, you're ending here and bringing this up as, as we close, because, um, that, that's literally how I'm ending my book. I'm like, it's weird, and, it, and I'm massively ambivalent about 2,000 years of Orthodox Christianity, but the notion of like the teachings of the Nazarene 
and how that shows up is profoundly psychoactive and seems like as good a fit as anything we've come across in a world in perpetual suffering. And, and like, you know, Leonard Cohen, he, he's, he's a boo you know, a zen and he's got, there's a crack in everything, that's where the light gets in. You know, Pema Chodron's Tibetan Buddhist and talks about that, you know, to be alive is to be continually thrown out of the nest. You've got Chongzi in China, like joy bathing. You've got wabi-sabi, you know, in Japanese, like everywhere around the world is this pervasive notion of, you know, it's Hemingway, the world breaks everyone and some of us mm. are stronger in the broken places. Like that feels perennial and, and universal and, and, and tapping that. So do you, do you know Howard Thurman? Have you come across his work as a civil rights leader? Okay. No. Okay, so, so check this out. So I only knew him because he has this beautiful inspirational quote that says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go and do that because what the world needs is more of us who have come alive, right? So it's a slam dunk inspirational quote. I think Oprah even ended up using it for a Harvard graduation address, blah, blah. And all I knew was that, civil rights leader, Howard Thurman. But then Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, and I were having a conversation like this uh, last week. And he told me that the Good Friday experiment, right? The 1962 or 64, you know, psilocybin seminarians for the Good Friday service, Howard Thurman, was delivered the sermon. So I was like, no fucking way, you gotta be kidding me. So he was the dean at BU, and that was the same time MLK was there. And Howard Thurman was a nature mystic who was born at the turn of the century in Florida. He grew up around, he talked to oak trees and hung out on the ocean. His grandmother, who was his guiding light, spent her first 25 years as a slave. And they had this radical underground Christianity where, where the preacher would come once a year to the plantation and would say, all of you are childs of God. And, and like that light up, the grandmother passed to him. He then went to India in 35. He was the first African-American emissary to meet with Gandhi. He and Gandhi mind meld. Gandhi downloads the whole idea of Satyagraha. Thurman is the one who brings it back to the States and injects it into the, the notion of not sacred nonviolence right into the civil rights movement until Thurman came back with that transmission nonviolence had been a tactic like don't piss off the bull Connors of the world or we'll get our asses beat it wasn't we're taking this irrevocable stand which sounds like the very one you're laying out and so I went back to the maps archive dug up Thurman's sermon from the Good Friday thing. And he tells this that the I mean, he's hypnotic and he has the, he was, he trained with Quakers. So he has these crazy long pauses. It's like the opposite of the Baptist oratory, you know, that Obama picked up from, you know, King and that whole, and is different. And he's like, just this transmission of this baritone voice. And he tells the story of speaking to Jesus, the Galilean. And he's like, come down off the cross. And then Jesus tells him, I'm, I can't come down until every man and woman and child comes to take me down. Until then, I'll stay, I'll stay up here. And he ends with this repetitious, like hypnotic. He's like, so remember, he goes, there's a lonely, solitary cross on that hill. And go and tell everyone, you know, like, there's a man on the cross. There's a man on the cross. And it's just, you know, kind of feels like where we are. And then we got to take, we got to, you know, stand each other up and help take each other down. It's easy as that. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Jesus Christ. How do we do that? 
I think it's just good God. I think sigils, you know, and a boatload of MDMA. I think it's comportment. I think it's feeling responsible for every other person. Everybody here, they're all on their own cross, you know? Yeah. Person to yeah. person, you know, moment to moment, you know? And it and the, the other big thing for our community, I think, and I really learned this lesson hard a couple of weeks ago, is uh, having no possession for any of it. You know, mm. it was a great exercise for me to see you know, a, a movie on Netflix with people speaking language from my books, you know? Oh, no way. Did you, you, was there a documentary or something? Yeah, this documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma. And my first response was, oh my God, they're ripping off my stuff. They're ripping off my stuff. And it was like, wow, what a childish response. You know, the, the, the 10 minutes later, my response is, these are the first guys I've been able to chip off from the machine. These are my first converts. I don't care if they know it's me. These are guys. Oh no way! So, so, so they were they were using concepts or terms that you had coined, yeah. and oh, but it yeah. was unself it was unselfconscious. They were just it was vernacular to them. Uh, yeah, I think either that or they can't give credit. I mean, now their website is called Team Humanity, right? Because my project's Team Human, so they named calling <laughs> something called Team Humanity, and it's like. No, I'm not going to be pissed off at that. What it means is I succeeded. And I don't, it doesn't matter, especially when I'm dead, if anybody knows that I had the idea. Oh, I'm not going to let the world get saved because they didn't give me credit for my contribution. You know, yeah. instead, see it as a celebration and realize, especially these dudes, these dudes need to feel like they've come up with it. They are all about oh, I mean, having the, full disclosure. I was I was in those conversations and I was like it should absolutely be fucking team human and get on the phone to to Doug because we should we should just make this yeah. and the same thing with this homegrown humans it's like we can only we can only language or brand the concept so many different ways we should really start connecting. I know. Well, I told them when 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 they called me to say oh we're going to do this thing called team humanity you shouldn't feel bad. I said why don't you just take team human? Well, join team human or let me yeah, be yeah, yeah. be on your thing. It's one thing. And it's like no, but they've got, you know, uh, special qualifications so but it's okay whatever they want whatever they want yeah. as long as they're on the team exactly <laughs> and, and that that to me it feels like let a thousand fires burn you know we don't know how we're going to get through this and no. and notion of the paradoxes is that bespoke solutions whether that's for addiction or transcendence or or, or innovation like those don't work because it's too personality personality dependent it's very hard to repeat right. so on the one hand you can't just do the custom one-off. And on the other hand, tops down centralized is a shit show. So we have to have things that are like locally adaptable and flexible, but at least don't start from scratch. You don't have to reinvent Godel's theorem, you know, monkeys right. at a typewriter. We can't rely on monkeys at a typewriter. We got to give them, you know, the, something to start with. We got to at least give them Mad Libs, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and on the other hand, be wary of centralization and whether that's Stalinist, tops down obvious, or it's philanthropic capitalism. Right. And you're like, nobody's that smart, not even Bezos, you know, or Gates. So right. how do, how can we do this together? Exactly. Awesome. Well, Doug, man, listen, I, I could, I can, I could talk to you forever. Yeah. I'm so glad you reached out. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. 
The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.